Nothing said is truer than that. People need the Lord. That, uh, that's a really marvelous song. Thank you, Paul, very much. This morning in our examination of the Word of God, I, I'm going to be responding to the request that Russ Moore had that I speak to you on the issue of the holiness of God. And I just want to say something before I say anything else, and that is that when we talk about the holiness of God, we're walking on holy ground. And um, it's very important that you listen with a hearing ear, not because I want your attention, but because God does. The subject of God's holiness is a vital, vital subject. In fact, um, I personally feel there's no more important subject in all the Scripture. And unless you understand the holiness of God, you're missing the basic comprehension that is foundational to all of Christian life and experience. Having said that, let me say that I'm afraid most people don't understand that. Most people perceive the standard of spiritual life to be much lower than it really is. You remember sometime reading in Romans 10 where it talks about the Jews who have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge, who have a, an understanding of religion but not, a, not based on the right standard. If you follow that through, it is most fascinating to me that it says in Romans chapter 10 that they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, went about to establish their own righteousness. Now that to me is an incredible statement, that the Jews were ignorant of God's righteousness. I mean, if anybody should have understood the righteousness of God, they should have, should they not? Had not God revealed his righteousness to them over and over and over and over again? They knew the law of God. They knew the wrath of God for those who violated the law. They knew the commandments of God, the statutes of God, the ordinances of God. They knew how God worked with those who disobeyed and how God blessed those who obeyed. How inconceivable, then, is it that at the time of the Lord and the writing of the Apostle Paul, he could say of the nation Israel that they were ignorant of God's righteousness. Almost inconceivable. But let me explain to you in what sense they were. They thought God was less righteous than he was. Did you get that? They thought God was less holy than he was. They thought they were more holy than they were, and so they found common ground with God without a Savior. Did you get that? They thought God was less holy than he was. They thought they were more holy than they were, and therefore they were acceptable to God without the need of a Savior. We cannot survive a view of God that makes him less than he is. Is that true? Sure it is. And I want you to understand the holiness of God. And I am unable in one chapel time to cover the range of truth relative to the holiness of God, but we're going to take a, at least a good look at one very, very significant chapter, and that's Isaiah chapter 6. So open your Bible, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 6. Yesterday you looked at the 40th chapter of Isaiah, and we're looking today at the 6th chapter, and maybe you're catching the idea that this is a very important prophetic book. Indeed it is. And a very important book in presenting the attributes of God. 
Let me give you a little bit of a running start. Let me go back to chapter 5 for a moment. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to give you some insight. In the fifth chapter of Isaiah, God pronounces through Isaiah a curse on the people Israel. And he says, in effect, I'm going to destroy Israel in terms of judgment. Uh, he gives a, a sort of a sad song from verses 1 through 6. It's a funeral song. It's a dirge. It's a eulogy. It's a, it's a song of judgment. Uh, God likens Israel to a vineyard, and he says, I planted my vineyard in a very fruitful hill, which was the land of Canaan, and I took all the stones out. That is, I removed the Canaanites, and I built a, a sort of a moat around them, a hedge around them. I gave them laws and rituals and routines that uh, made... Uh, uh, intercourse and fellowship with the pagan nations very difficult. They had a very prescribed and circumscri circumscribed lifestyle. I did everything I could to assure that they would bring forth fruit. And I looked for grapes, he says. And instead, verse 4, when I looked for Israel to produce what would be consistent with the investment I made, I found that it brought forth bu'ushim. That's a Hebrew word for sour berries. And God says, I looked for a nation to produce fruit consistent with the investment, and instead all I got was sour berries. As a result of that, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to tear down my vineyard, he says in verse uh, 5, and I'm going to lay it waste in verse 6. I'm going to judge. And then he pronounces a series of curses, starting in verse 8. The word woe means curse or pronounced judgment, damnation on. Very severe First of all, he talks about materialism. They are laying field to field and uh, talks about building great houses in verse 9. In other words, they're really into getting as much property as they can, building great mansions. They've gotten into materialism. Down in verse 11, he gets into drunkenness, talk about following strong drink, drinking early in the morning, drinking until wine inflames them. Then verse 12, wild music, parties, orgies, the whole bit is implied there. You come down to verse 18, and the third curse is pronounced on them because they draw iniquity with cords of vanity as if it were attached to a cart by a rope. In other words, they're like beasts of burdens pulling around a wagon load of sin. They're involved in immorality and defiant sinfulness. They actually, in verse 19, wave their fist at God and say, if you don't like it, let's see you do something about it. And then in verse 20, it talks about the perversion that comes when people reverse moral values. They call evil good and good evil, and they switch darkness for light and light for darkness and bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And this is a picture of moral perversion, where what used to be wrong is now right and what used to be right is now laughed at. Things that are common in our society. Verse 22 talks about corrupt leadership. It says the mighty and the men of strength, both those Hebrew terms mean leadership. Their corrupt leadership, they had no models, no examples. Verse 21, another curse for their arrogant conceit. So there are a series of curses pronounced, and then beginning in verse 24, he describes the terrifying judgment that's going to come upon them. Now we ask this question, right? The, the sins that we see in Isaiah 5 that were characteristic of Israel are sins that are characteristic of our day. Would you say we live in a day and an age and a country where materialism is a big thing? Would you say drunkenness is a big thing, wild music, parties, orgies, the whole thing? Sure, the good time Charlie's, I mean, that's part of our society. What about, um, what about defiant sinfulness, where people literally hook themselves up like a beast of burden and drag around a wagon load of sin and are proud about it, and shake a fist in the face of God in defiance and say, if you don't like it, do something about it? What about moral perversion, switching right for wrong? Is that part of our society? Sure it is. What about corrupt leadership? All of these things, and arrogant conceit, everybody with their own opinion, sure. So we ask this question. Here's Isaiah, 
And he's living in a society that is corrupted to this extent, like we are. And let me ask you the question, what kind of people is God looking for? What kind of person does it take to reach that kind of society? Clever person? Um, popular person? Successful person? Highly motivated person? Brilliant person? Intellectual person? What kind of person does God look for in the midst of a society on the brink of doom? And that's the kind of society we live in today. What is God looking for? What are we trying to produce in a, in a college like this? Clever people, bright people, intelligent people, motivated people, people with great ingenuity. What kind of people are we after? Intellectuals, eggheads? Let's find out. We do that as we come to chapter 6. And the scene is explosive. In the year that King Uzziah died, and somebody always says, so what? Is that important? Yes, it's very important. King Uzziah had been the king for 52 years. Now, in the volatile period of history in which Uzziah reigned, it was very unusual for a man to hang around that long. 52 years, the same king. It's now 740 B.C., and Israel has settled into a very comfortable position because they've had the same king so long that they really have the sense that God is really very, very approving of their whole sort of current status. I mean, after all, uh, Uzziah is a good guy. He's brought peace. They have a very strong position in the Cold War. There are no wars going on. They have a very strong economic position. The land is productive. The people are happy. Everything is going along great. And as long as Uzziah was the king, it was sort of like the token representation of God's favor. And as long as he was there, they could let their religion slide, and true spirituality had long ago disappeared, and they were already guilty of the sins mentioned in chapter 5. But they never came to grips with the reality of those sins because they never saw the judgment of God fall. They're right where we are in our society. And the church, instead of living in the fear of God, is living in a, in a perspective that allows it to court the world because it's not really seeing the judgment of God. And that's right where Israel was. So then Uzziah died. Now, that's a significant event. If you want to read about his death, you can read Second Chronicles chapter 26. Not now, but later. Does anybody know how he died? How did Uzziah die? Leprosy. Anybody know how he got it? He got it because he decided he was so invincible as a king that he could usurp the role of a priest. And he stepped across the boundary of God's law and tried to function as a priest, and God struck him with leprosy, and he died. It was a pride sin that brought his death. On the northern border of Israel sat the enemy. And now with Isaiah dead and Tiglath-Pileser ready to move in and devastate the people of Israel, there was a tremendous amount of fear. Their anchor, their sort of symbol of security, the man Isaiah, was now dead, and they weren't sure just exactly where they stood. They had no leader. They had no longer the symbol of God's care over them. That This 52-year reign of peace had come to a, to a halt in a very bizarre way as their king had died of leprosy, which was brought upon himself by his own sin. Now, Isaiah knows they're in a very tenuous position. And so where does he go? Where do you go when you run out of human resources? Where, who do you approach? God, right? So Isaiah goes to the temple. And he needs to plug into God and find out what's going on. So in verse 1 it says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord. 
Can I stop and say for just a moment that I don't want to be devotional at this point, but I do want to make the point that I think is here, and that is that if ever there is a need for a vision of God, it is then. Why? Because Isaiah knows that all human resources are gone. The nation is bankrupt spiritually. The king, who is the symbol of God's favor, is dead, killed by God himself. The enemy sits on the border much more powerful than Israel is. And the only resource is God. And the focus has to be on him. And I believe Isaiah went to the temple for no other reason than to see God. And when he got there, he saw God. Now, what did he see? He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. And this is marvelous. He doesn't see God in the position of defeat. He sees God in the position of what? Sovereignty, right? He's still on the throne. Isn't that good to know? I mean, when everything else comes apart, God has not vacated his throne. God is still in charge. He is still sovereign. He is still supreme. He is still king. And he is high and lifted up. He is the sovereign, exalted, majestic king of the universe. And his train, that is to say, the emanating Shekinah glory that flows off of God, the blazing glory of God, fill that temple where he has this vision. Now, this is a vision. And people say, what is a vision? I don't know. It's, it's not reality and it's not a dream. It's somewhere between reality and a dream. It's real and it's unreal. It's what it is. And I've never had one, so I don't know. But anyway, the point is he saw the Lord, and he saw the Lord on the throne. And boy, it must have been a comfort, huh? I mean, it, wouldn't, it, it would have been sad if he'd have seen the Lord off his throne somewhere and wondered, uh-oh, not only do we not have a king, not only do we have a perverse generation, not only is our enemy sitting on the border, but God isn't there either. But God was there. That's very comforting. When everything else falls apart, he's still on the throne. Now, he sees the Lord. Now, this becomes a very interesting thing. Have you ever heard anybody say they saw God? You ever heard anybody say that? You ever watch charismatic TV? Have those people get on there and tell you they went to heaven and saw God? Well, let's see what happens when you really see God. Let's see if what you do when you see God is go on TV and uh, tell about it. He saw the Lord... And above the throne, verse 2 says, stood the seraphim. Now, seraphim are angels uniquely designed to guard the character of God, the holiness of God. And these seraphim, it's a plural word indicating there were many of them. We don't know how many. The seraphim and every one of them had how many wings? Six wings. Now, this is an amazing looking creature. Two of those wings were used to cover his what? Face. Two were used to cover his Feet And with two he did, and the Hebrew word is hover, like a celestial helicopter, just hovering, see, in motion. Now, why this? What is this to say? A, we could digress, but I'll resist that and simply mention the fact that out of the six wings, how many of those wings were related to worship and how many were related to service? How many wings were related to, to worship? Four. How many were related to service? Two. The two that were hovering were ready to go and do. The four other wings were to cover the face. Why? Because they were in the presence of God. And no one, not an angel or a man, could ever look on God and what? And live. Exodus 33, you cannot see my face and what? And live. And with two they covered their feet for the place in which they stood was what? Was holy ground. Have we lost that perspective somewhere along the line? 
Have we lost the sense that the priority in Christian living is not service? The priority in Christian living is what? It's adoration. It's worship. We're going to get into that next week when I talk to you about worship. I think it's next week. Is it next week? It will be next week. We'll do it. But the priority is worship. Now, here he sees these angels, and they can't even look upon God. And they have their feet covered because of the holy presence in which they are existing. And they're hovering, ready to do whatever God wants them to do. And what is their antiphonal conversation? It's an antiphonal conversation in verse 3. Then one is crying over against another and returning it is the idea. And they're saying back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And here they're speaking of the holiness of God. Do you know that there is no other attribute of God mentioned in the scripture in three successive ways like this? It never in the Bible says God is love, love, love. God is good, good, good. God is wrath, wrath, wrath. God is justice, justice, justice. The only one is what? Holy, holy, holy. Why? Because that is the supreme attribute of God. The word holy means separate. And what it says is that God is utterly separate from us. He is, I like to call it his, as the old theologians used to call it, his divine otherness. He is utterly unlike us. And what are we like? We're like sinful and he's not like sinful. He is utterly unlike us in that he is totally separate from sinners, as it says of Jesus Christ. And so what the angels are crying is God is without flaw, without error, without sin. He is holy, holy, holy to emphasize his absolute, perfect, flawless holiness. There is no flaw in him. He is perfectly holy. And that's what the angels celebrate. And so the God that Isaiah sees is a holy, holy, holy God. By the way, those three mentions of holy may also, what theologians call, be the trihagion related to the three members of the Trinity. Holy is the Father, holy is the Son, holy is the Spirit. So they are there for emphasis and perhaps there as an allusion to the Trinity. But I want you to notice what happens. In this incredible scene, God is high and lifted up. His Shekinah glow literally fills the temple. Isaiah sees the angels there. They're crying back and forth about God's absolute perfect holiness. And what occurs in verse 4? The posts of the door in the temple where he was moved the voice of him, that being the angel who cried, and the house was filled with what? Smoke. Do you remember what the scripture says? The book of Hebrews, our God is a consuming what? Fire. Now, when you see God in his holiness, you see him as a consuming God. Why? Because the antithesis of holiness is what? What's the opposite of holiness? Three letters. Sin. So when you see God in his holiness, then you're going to see God in his fury against what? Sin. It has to be that way. And so there's a fearful element here. The place begins to shake. Is this reminiscent of Mount Sinai when God gave the law and it said the mountain was touched with fire and smoke and the whole mountain began to shake and God said, don't let anybody go near that thing and touch that mountain or they'll be consumed. When you see God in his holiness, you have to see him, therefore, in his consuming anger against sin. And so this is a very severe experience. 
This is what R.C. Sproul calls the trauma of holiness. This is a frightening experience. Now, what was his reaction? Does he say, hey, wow, man, this is really a far out scene. Wait till I go on the road with this one. Tell everybody I saw God. Wait till I get on Christian TV and write my book. And... Is that his reaction? Look at verse 5. He says, Then said I, What? What did he say? Woe is me. What does he mean by that? Well, he just used the word six times in verse 5, or chapter 5, I mean. And every time he used it, it meant a curse unto damnation. You say, what is he doing? He's cursing himself. He's saying, damn me to judgment, God. Curse me. Well, we say, well, you can't. why is he saying that? Woe is me, for I am undone. The Hebrew word means to disintegrate or fall into pieces. I'm being ripped to pieces. I'm collapsing. I'm disintegrating. Why? Because I am a man with a dirty mouth, literally. And I dwell amidst the people with dirty mouths. Now you say, wait a minute, Isaiah. You'll never make it in the ministry with a bad self-image. You've got to get your act together. You're okay, guy. Well, You've got to feel good about yourself. Doesn't that sound pretty familiar? You've got to pump yourself up, man. You've got some great characteristics. You're, you're a popular guy. Not only that, you've got a good mouth. You shouldn't be mumbling about having a dirty mouth. You've got the best mouth in Israel. When you open your mouth, God talks. You're a prophet. What in the world are you doing? You can't go around like that. You can't go around saying, Woe is me, curse me, damn me to judgment. Pour out your wrath on me, God. You'll never make it that way. You've got to have you know, confidence. Well, see, you don't understand. Look what he says at the end of verse 5. Mine eyes have just seen what? The king, the Lord of hosts. So you don't understand, he says. You people who think you're okay, think you're okay because you never saw who you're to, who you're to be compared against. The point is this. When you see an infinitely holy God and you find yourself in the presence of an infinitely holy God and you are aware of his infinite holiness, all you can see about yourself is your what? Your what? Your sin. I mean, the contrast is paralyzing. You remember, do you remember a man in the Old Testament by the name of Manoah? Manoah was the father of a very famous strong man by the name of Samson. And one day, Manoah came home and he said to his wife, We'll die. We're going to die. Why? We've seen the Lord. That's right. We saw God. We're dead. Crushed. Why did he think that? Because he knew God was an infinitely holy God, too holy to look on sin, too righteous to, to allow iniquity, and that if he was ever in the presence of God, he would be so unmasked as a sinner that God would have to snuff him out of existence that fast. Now, God is a holy God. People in the Old Testament knew that. I mean, there were, have you ever read the Old Testament and wondered how come God sort of seemed to kill people at sort of strange times? Like people fall in a hole and die or... Uh, in the case of, uh, you remember the prophet Elisha walking along the road and a bunch of little kids yelled baldy. They says some young boys yelled baldy to the prophet. Go up, go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. And you remember some bears came out of the woods and shredded 42 little guys into ribbons. And the critics have always said, what kind of God is, sends a bear out of the woods to shred up a bunch of young men who say baldy to a prophet? 
I mean, people like to bring those issues up, the critics. The issue is very interesting. The Hebrew word indicates they weren't little kids at all. They were, they were probably in their 20s. Not only that, when they were saying, thou bald head, thou bald head, they were mocking the prophet of God because premature baldness was associated in that culture with leprosy. And so they were saying, you outcast, you outcast. And when they said, go up, go up, go up, you bald head, they were mocking the translation of Elijah in a whirlwind and a chariot of fire who was taken into heaven. And if you're such a hot prophet leper, why don't we, t why don't we watch you go up in a chariot? They were mocking the prophet of God and God sent a bear out and ripped them to ribbons because God wanted everybody to know you don't mess with his prophets. You say, but everybody who spoke evil of a prophet didn't die. No, not everybody, because God is gracious, but every once in a while he gives an illustration of what everybody deserves. Do you get that? Hey, the question isn't why did some people die? The question is why did anybody what? Live. That's the question. If God is of purer eyes than to behold evil and can look on iniquity, the issue is why does anybody live? The question you have to ask yourself, young person, is this. Listen, the question is, is not why does the Lord come down in judgment on some folks? The question is why are not you and me long ago dead and in hell? And what's the answer? Because God is a God of what? Of grace. Aren't you glad for that? His holiness demands that he punish sin. And I tell you, it turns my stomach when I see some guy get on television and say, well, you know, this Dr. Eby or whoever he is, the other day I went to heaven and I saw the Lord. And uh, he said, and every time I want to remind myself, I take the tie out of the closet that I wore when I went to heaven and I smell it because it still has the smell of heaven on it. You know, that's a farce, an absolute farce. I have a, a pastor friend that I know that said to me when they were having lunch, he said, you know, sometimes, he said, you'll find this hard to believe, but sometimes Jesus comes into the bathroom when I'm shaving and puts his arm around me and, and talks with me. He said, do you believe that? I said, no. But it's, what is worse, I believe you believe that. <laughs> and that frightens me. My only question is this. When Jesus comes in the bathroom and puts his arm around you when you're shaving, do you keep shaving? Or do you fall on the ground and crack your head on the commode and say, God, spare me, a sinner? If you keep shaving, my friend, it isn't Jesus Christ. Then you better check on who it is. Don't give me any of that nonsense that you saw God and kept shaving. You understand what I'm getting at? I mean, if we understand that God is a holy God who cannot look upon evil and cannot look upon sin, we understand that we're in serious, serious danger when he comes into our presence. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. Sure, I mean, in the Old Testament, a lot of people died when they got near God. That's also the New Testament. You say, well, wasn't Jesus just sort of hearts and flowers? Didn't he go through the world like a flower girl throwing petals along the aisle? Isn't he just a warm and fuzzy? Isn't Jesus just a cool, you know? Well, let's look at it this way. Jesus basically scared people. He frightened people. The, the word used in Matthew so many times is thaumadzo, which is translated to marvel, but it implies the idea of a fearful thing. I mean, there was a little lady, she'd been sick for a long time. She said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I can be well. Remember her? So she crawls around in the crowd. She reaches out, and there's four blue tassels that hung from the robe of an Orthodox Jew. She grabs one of those deals, and zap, she's, she's instantly healed. And Jesus said, who touched me? And the disciples said, is that a joke? you got people bumping you from all sides. And so I, he said, no, I felt power go out of me. I want to see that lady. And there's this lady. She's completely healed now. And they bring her out of the crowd. 
And the Bible says she was, what? Terrified. It, she wasn't going, oh, this is wonderful. No. She came out of that crowd and she was terrified. It uses the, the word tremo. And in the Septuagint of the Old Testament, it's used for the shaking of Mount Sinai. It's used for the fleeing of the islands of the sea at the coming of Christ. And it's used for the reconstruction of the new heaven and the new earth. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big shake. She was terrified. Why? Because she knew she was in the presence of God. How did she know that? She'd just been instantaneously healed. She knew that was God. And when she was in the presence of a holy God, all she could see about herself was her own what? sin and she knew what she deserved and she was afraid do you remember Peter trying to fish he never could catch fish after he was called to the ministry the Lord rerouted all the fish they never went near his boat he tried to go fishing and he never could catch anything but one time he was in Luke chapter 5 trying to catch fish and the Lord came along to teach him a lesson and said try the right side of the boat the Lord standing on the shore try the right side of the boat that could make you mad You've been fishing all night, and some guy walks up and says, why don't you try the right side of the boat? You know, I mean, as if the fish knew the difference. Or as if your boat was sitting in one spot, or as if you hadn't. But, you know, the story threw his nets in, pulled up so many fish they couldn't get him in the boat. Remember that? Do you remember Peter's response? Hey, terrific miracle. Wait till I tell everybody this one. No. You know what his response was? Luke 5, 8. Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a what? Sinful man. Go away. I can't stand the intimidation. You see, he knew he was in the presence of God because only God controls the fish. And all he could see about himself was his own sin. You remember the disciples trying to cross the Sea of Galilee in a boat? Jesus in the boat. Remember that? North Shore trying to get across. A storm came up and the storm was whipping up everything. And boy, they can have some great storms. I've been on a boat in the Sea of Galilee when it's been stormy. And it's bumping around in there in this little wooden rowboat. Jesus is lying in the back and he's lying on a piece of wood. He's got his head on a block of wood. He, you know, you have to be pretty tired to sleep on wood with a wood pillow. Especially if your boat is half full of water in the middle of a storm and a bunch of disciples are standing over you screaming about the fact that they're going to drown. You need to be very tired to endure that kind of circumstance. But the Lord was asleep and finally, the Bible says, Mark 4, they were afraid. They were afraid. What were they afraid of? They were afraid they were going to drown. So they awakened Jesus and they said uh, in King James English, Master, carest thou not that we perish? I, I don't know that they were that austere in their presentation. <laughs> we're going to drown if you don't do something. And so the Lord got up and gave them the routine speech, the little, the little faith speech. Oh, you have little faith. They were the little faith association. So he gave them that routine speech oh you of little faith and then he said shh and the ripples didn't even run to the shore they just flattened out and the wind stopped and then the New Testament says the disciples were exceedingly afraid you see what's worse than having a storm outside your boat is having holy God in your boat very intimidating and they were very afraid. Do you remember when they were taking Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Jesus and he pulled back the veil of his flesh and he revealed the glory of God? The Bible says they fell on their faces in terror. Jesus scared people. 
He frightened people when he revealed his deity because sinners knew they were in the presence of holy God and sinners in the presence of holy God are only aware of their own sin and what a holy God must do with that sin. And the marvelous truth of the gospel is that holy God, who should wreak the vengeance of his own wrath on every vile sinner, has by his marvelous grace put it all on whom? On his son, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, for those who do not receive Christ, the fury of all of it falls on them. And the fact that you still live now, my dear friend, has nothing to do with what you deserve but only the grace of God. Only the grace of God. So, he was devastated. He said, I'm a man with a dirty mouth. Why did he say that? Because he could only see his evil, see? And is it not true that out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. You put me with a person long enough and I'll tell you what their character is like by listening to their mouth. He knew that. Plus, his mouth was his trademark. And his mouth, I'll take it a step further, his mouth, frankly, was the best thing about him because it was through his mouth that he spoke as the prophet of God. And yet when he took the very best part of him, his mouth, which was the tool of God, and saw it compared with holy God, he came out evil. You say, well, what are you, what are you going to do with a dirty mouth prophet? He's no use to anybody. Well, let's find out. Verse 6. Then flew one of the seraphim to me, having a live coal. It's a red, hot coal. He had taken it with the tongs from off the altar. And he put it on my mouth. Whew. Can you imagine taking a red, hot coal and putting it on your lips? Just singe and sear the flesh. And he said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is what? Taken away and your sin is purged or cleansed or forgiven. Now, let me tell you something, young people. I hope you're getting a sense of the big picture of this college and of what we want to do in your life. The big picture is not to get you through four years or two years or whatever you have left. The big picture is not to make you an educated person. The big picture is to see you useful in the kingdom of God. And that doesn't happen through education. Education is a small part of that. It happens through recognition of your own sinfulness and your own unworthiness in the presence of an infinitely holy God and a desire to have your lips touched and the sin burned out of your life. That's the issue. You say, but can God use a dirty mouth prophet? Yes, if that dirty mouth prophet opens his mouth and lets God purge it. Right? That's the point. I mean, I'm no different than you. I'm no better than you. I'm worse than you. I have nothing more to offer God than you. I have nothing to offer God, and neither do you. There is no innate holiness in me. I don't have some God-given virtue that is unique to me and not available to you. The difference between a, f a faithful servant of the Lord and one who is useless to the Lord is not innate ability. It's cleansing. It's purging. It's washing the sin out. Burning it out. It's always painful. That's the whole point here. By the way, I see in that altar and that coal uh, a sort of a symbol of the death of Jesus Christ who put his life on the altar. It was through Christ 
that that purging came. What kind of people is God looking for? Clever people? Um, perfect people? Self-righteous people? Gifted people? Innovative people? Talented people? No, no. He's looking for people who will admit their what? Their sinfulness and endure the pain of purging and cleansing. Young people, that's the bottom line. In verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Hey, we got this dying nation here. we got this decaying civilization around us. Who's going to go? Who's going to preach? Who's going to tell them the truth? What's the answer? Well, there's nobody around, God, except one dirty-mouthed prophet. I mean, if you look at my life, I, it would make a black mark on a piece of coal. I'm not what you want. And I've heard people say, you know, when the Lord said, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. I don't believe that for a minute. I don't think he was offering himself as some great commodity. Here am I, I have my, my Ph.D. or whatever. I'm educated. I'm, I'm talented. Boy, Lord, you could... I think he probably mumbled under his breath after he looked around and said, Well, I'm here. You, you could send me. And the world would say, Sorry, we can't use a dirty mouth prophet. But verse 9, God said what? What did he say? Go. May I say to you with all the conviction in my heart, young people, this is the kind of person God's still looking for. We're living in a dying world. We're living in a Christ-rejecting, God-hating world. We're living in a world where people don't want to hear the Word of God. We're living in a world that is headed for doom and judgment. And what God wants is not great talent. What God wants is great purity. And that's why... in Peter's epistle, he said, Be ye holy as I am holy. It's the purity of your life that God will bless. Not your great talent. And then he said to him, Go, and this is what you tell the people. And this is unbelievable. He says, Tell them not to listen. Tell them not to understand and tell them not to perceive. And make their heart fat, their ears heavy, their eyes blind. What, what in the world is this? Can you imagine that at your commissioning service? Go, my brother, and know this. No one will listen to anything you say. That's what he said. So what was Isaiah's response? Verse 11. Uh, then said I, Lord, what? What does he say? Uh, ha, ha, ha. How long do I do that? A few days? couple of weeks. I mean, I certainly don't want to spend too long talking to people who aren't going to listen. No, just keep doing that till the cities are wasted without inhabitant, the houses are without man, and the land is utterly desolate. And the Lord has removed everybody out of the land as a great forsaking. Do it till everybody's gone completely out of this land. Does that seem a little futile? Then comes the promise of verse 13. And in it there shall be a tenth. And just this word. The tenth is this, it speaks of the remnant of those who will truly believe. 
And at the end of verse 13, he calls them the holy what? Seed. Listen, people. There's a holy seed out there. There's a remnant who will believe. Most of the world isn't going to listen. Is that what you found out? But there's a holy seed. And there's a remnant to be reached. And if you and I are going to be the ones to do that by God's grace, it's going to be because we have dealt with a sin in our life in the face of an infinitely holy God. That's the issue. Let's pray together. We love you, Father. And while we stand in awe of your holiness and in fear of your judgment as sinners, we still rush into your presence without fear because Christ has given us access and in him we have been made your children, your beloved children. Thank you, Lord, for the cleansing that has transformed us from sinners doomed to wrath to children invited into your love. Use us even this day for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.